Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. to have Kurt Gray on the podcast. Kurt is an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He received his BSc from the University of Waterloo and his PhD in social psychology from Harvard University. He studies the mysteries of subjective experience and likes to wield Occam's razor to defend parsimony, asking whether complex phenomena can be simplified and understood through basic processes. These phenomena include moral judgment, group genesis, and psychopathology. He's been named an APS Rising Star and was awarded the Janet Spence Award for Transformative Early Career Research. He was also given the SPSB Theoretical Innovative Award for the article, Mind Perception is the Essence of Morality. His latest book is The Mind Club, Who Thinks, What Feels, and Why It Matters, co-authored with the late, great Daniel Wagner. Thanks for being on the show, Kurt. Thanks for having me. What a fascinating book, you know, that you talk about how you like to wield Occam's razor to defend parsimony. Well, you also, in this book, kind of like, you take all of the greatest life's mysteries and then just like um, distill it to like, oh, you know, you, you put too much science in there, I think, where, where it's like, where's the magic of life? So tell me. <laughs> <laughs> there, is a, there is a lot of science. We do try to well done everything from love to oh my falling in love with animals. Yeah. I mean, the range of topics that you cover in this book is so comprehensive and you touch on so many big issues in the life of human existence. 
And I thought we could talk about a bunch of this stuff today. Yeah. So the Mind Club. Great. Yeah, the book is called The Mind Club. And you define the Mind Club as that special collection mm -hmm. of entities who can think and feel. So in order to have a mind, do you need to satisfy both criterion? That's a great question. And what we find is actually that there's really two mind clubs. There's a, a thinking mind club and a feeling mind club. And, you know, you and I have both the ability to think and feel, but some things only have one ability, like animals are often seen to only feel. And corporations, for instance, are seen only to think. You know, I'm wondering, because like in the field of cognitive psychology, is there a distinction between like emotions, like the study of emotions and the study of mind? The construct of mind in psychology, is it something that does naturally incorporates emotions? Because I've seen it discussed different ways in the field. I've sort of seen it described like the cerebral core, you know, like more of like the higher order processes. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's a really vague concept, what mind is and what emotions are. I mean, there's been debates going on for centuries almost about who has a mind and who has emotions. Sure. So... I think, you know, we're just defining it in a way that makes it easy for us to kind of look at these different mysteries and whether emotion's part of mind or different from mind or what have you. It seems almost like a philosophical issue. For sure, for sure. And, and you're interested in those issues as well and in incorporating that into your work. Let's back up a second and, and talk about how you met Daniel Wagner and the special bond you guys have and how the, this book came to fruition. Yeah, so... I actually only met Dan Wagner once I was already his grad student. Seems kind of funny. I was actually traveling in Australia. So after college, I took a year off to go to Australia and surf and pick grapes. And the first time I ever spoke to him was coming back from picking grapes one afternoon and my cell phone rang and it was Dan. And he said, would you like to come and do grad school with me and explore the mysteries of the kind of human mind? And I said, that sounds pretty amazing. And so, you know, that was in 2004 when I started. And I originally wanted to look at free will. That's what he was doing at the time. But he had done this whole new area of mind perception. And that sounded really interesting, mostly for me because of all the moral questions it brought up. And we had talked a lot about these ideas. And I think he wanted to write a book about them. And he was going to write that book by himself. But in 2000. 10, which is when I graduated, he found out that he had been diagnosed with ALS. And he wondered if I might be willing to help him finish the book if he didn't have time to finish writing it. And, you know, of course, I said, yes, I'd be, be grateful. And unfortunately, the disease went much faster than we mm. hoped it would. And by the time he was too sick to write, he had kind of written the first chapter and a little bit of the second. Of course, he'd planned out a lot of other stuff, but that's how I got into the book and ended up doing a fair amount of it. But even when I was kind of writing the chapters after he'd passed away, I still kind of had this ability to, of course, perceive Dan's mind and always kind of wonder, you know, is this what Dan would have wanted to say? And most of the time, I think, yes, you know, the much of the book is as Dan would have written it down to the weird jokes and the weird yeah. examples. So. I agree. I think he would, you know, he's be very proud of you and this book. So how much of it did he write? How much did he get a chance to see before he passed away? How many chapters? So he, as I mentioned, he'd kind of written the first chapter okay. and he'd given me feedback on, on the chapter of the machine. Okay. Uh, that's the third chapter. 
And he kind of looked at my plans for the other ones. Okay. But, but mostly, you know, near the end, he wasn't able to kind of write or read that much. So I would just go up there and sit next to him. We'd look out over the lake through his picture window. And I would just kind of tell him what my plans were. And he said, you know, those plans sound reasonable. <laughs> Good. You know, go forth and multiply chapters. And yeah, and it took me about three years after he passed away to get it all written up. But it got done. It did. And it is, like I said, it's a very interesting book. You talk about crypto mines a lot in this book because is essentially every chapter in another manifestation of a crypto mind? Yes, that's yeah. exactly right. Every chapter is a kind of interesting mind. And a crypto mine is just something that's, you know, that's cryptic to us. We, it's have a, we have a hard time understanding whether there's a mind present or not, like an animal or a machine. Let me jump all, you know, all the way and we'll, we'll work backwards to the self which is your last chapter. So do we have trouble? You know, I, I know the answer to this question, but I, I'm asking a leading question. Do we have a trouble understanding ourselves? Well, yeah, we sure do. I mean, <laughs> has anyone uh, ever in the history of the world ever wondered who am I? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm the first to ever bring up this question. <laughs> right. So certainly psychology and philosophy before that have kind of plumbed the limits of our own self-knowledge and wondered what it means to be a person. And so some reviews of the Mind Club say that they're in some ways almost two different books. The first nine chapters is about all these kind of cryptic minds. And then the last chapter on the self, as you picked up on, is really a kind of brief, fun summary of modern social psychology and how we do or really do not know who we are. Have you read, uh, I think Bruce Hood wrote it about how the self is a myth or uh, is an illusion? Uh, I haven't read Bruce's book, no. But Dan has a book or a chapter rather called The Self is Magic. Oh. So I imagine is a similar kind of thing, right? It's not a real thing. It's not like a book you can hold. But, but it feels so real. It does, yeah. And we yeah. somehow we somehow like we feel it as a unified whole. Although, you know, I think you asked in actually in Bruce's book, he he asked people to think, close your eyes and try to locate where you think the self is and like kind of draw an X on a cartoon person, a, a version of a brain to show where it is. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, what scared me about that exercise for me personally is when I closed my eyes, I had trouble. I located it like in multiple areas, depending on what image of myself I thought of. Like I had all sorts of different images. Is that bad? That means I don't have a unified self or is that normal? I think it's, well, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I'm pretty sure it's normal. I mean, I, I share your intuition. You know, if I try to pin down the self, I mean, I might not even put the X just in myself because right. who I am is determined by my wife and my colleagues, my pets, you know, my work. Maybe I put part of the X in the mind club because I poured so much of myself into the book, right? It's, it's hard to pin down. Absolutely. I mean, the, our self-concept is constantly changing. I mean, it's good to have a stable source of self-esteem, of course, but we do seem to have all these different aspects. So how does that relate to the mind? How does the self relate to, you know, your main thesis running through this whole book that mind is a matter of perception? How does mm -hmm. that relate to the self? Well, I think it kind of perfectly relates in some sense because the self is really a matter of perception. As and well, yeah. At least in psychology, we kind of understand that the self is a matter of perception. It's something we make. But we often think of the minds of others as something that's really there, right? And, you know, there is an objective fact of the matter, whether your pet can be embarrassed, right? Whether your cat uh, has deep thoughts. But for the most part, 
the minds of our pets and our machines and dead people and vegetative patients. As you mentioned, it's a matter of perception. And that's something we really stress in the book. Absolutely. And you talk about implications for lots of things, and we'll get into some of this. So one I want to talk about is morality. So you talk about this phrase dyadic morality, and you talk about it in virtually every chapter. You talk about how it's relevant to the kind of crypto mind you're talking about. So what is dyadic morality, and how does it relate to whether or not something we judge it as immoral or not? Yeah, so dyadic morality is just the idea that we understand morality in terms of two, two roles or two minds, right? The word dyad is the Greek word for two. and what it means is when we think of immoral things or moral things, we think of a perpetrator and a victim. That's all it really is. That's what a dyad is. So murder has a murderer and a victim. Abuse has an abuser and abusee. And we take that, that template to understand kind of everything around us. And the important thing is that those two people aren't just things, but they're minds. So an abuser or a perpetrator, we think in terms of responsibility, thinking, right? Kind of planning, intention. Those are what we'd call agency, but you can think of it as really a thinking doer. On the other hand, the victim is a vulnerable feeler, right? We're concerned about their suffering and their feelings. So morality is really about pairing together a thinking doer who causes suffering to a vulnerable feeler. That's all it kind of is. Yeah. And that distinction explains so much, but can you like pull out the doer as well from the thinker? Like if we talk about like modern dual process theory, like the fact that we have, you know, we have more automatic processes that might not be really thinking. We're not like consciously thinking to do them, but they still do things. Do you know what I mean? Isn't it possible to tease out the doer from the thinker as well? Yes, certainly you can kind of separate it. But I think when we pass judgments of blame and moral responsibility, we're primarily concerned with the thinking behind the doing. So if you're a sleepwalker or... Right, right. that's a great example of an automatic process where we infer mind even though... And would you say mind is still a part of that even though it's unconscious? I think, well, so of course, if you if you murder someone while you're sleepwalking, as we talk about in the self chapter, then you know, you're still doing it and there's still, your mind's still involved in some sense, right? Like your brain's making you move and kill someone. But it's not mind in the sense that we normally think of and certainly not mind in the sense that we think deserves more responsibility. So in this case of the sleepwalker, everyone acknowledged that he killed his father-in-law, but no one thought that he was responsible. He lacked that kind of thinking part of his mind, even if he was still doing it. Okay. Okay. And this idea of, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum with the vulnerable feelers, we tend to have the most compassion for them. You know, it's kind of like a ratio. Like if you're much, much more of a vulnerable feeler than you're thinking doer, we tend to have more compassion for you. It seems like if you've like faced injustice, for instance, or you're a victim, if you're a victim. Certainly. Yeah. So people get incensed when people harm babies and puppies and orphans, right? These are all things that we think are very vulnerable and sensitive to pain, but we don't really get upset when CEOs get injured or professional wrestlers get injured, right? So it's really about, you know, this vulnerability, which makes them ideal victims. And then, as you say, makes us empathize with them. And could that be problematic, though, from in the sense that we might not have as much empathy for the um, people that we've kind of put in the enemy category? 
like that maybe we could actually lack our own empathy for them because we do that. Do you know? Certainly. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. So just because we perceive a mind a certain way, especially when it comes to human minds, doesn't mean that that's true, right? So we can perceive that, you know, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company is cold and calculating and is just doing things for profit. But, but maybe, you know, he or she is actually very sensitive to criticism and very caring, but their role just prevents us from seeing that. So, so again, it's yeah. all about perception. It is. Yeah. I mean, we could, there could be certain individuals in a company who could actually have been more innocent than others, but we lump them as a part of the whole group and kind of strip them of their humanity in a way. Yeah. And yeah. on the flip side, we could have a child maybe who we, you know, we really empathize for. Like an evil stuff. child. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like a devil spawn yeah. child. Yeah. And we feel bad for them. But oh, look feel- how cute they are. Ah! Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. My gosh, you really like nothing is off limits in this book. You know, like from bestiality to, you know, I mean, it's amazing. So let's talk about bestiality for a second. You know, how does that relate to uh, perceptions of minds? Well, so it's an interesting topic, right? Because some people, we cover in the book, right? Some people perceive a lot of mind in animal. They fall in love with animals, right? They fall in romantic love with animals and want to express that love. Although, I mean, you'd be surprised at how many people do it, but not enough that I would say it's normal using like a statistical definition of what what normal is. Okay. But the weird thing from a mind perceptions perspective is why do we think bestiality is so terrible? And probably all our listeners, right, think that's really twisted when people do that. And, you know, certainly it is weird, but it's not clear that the animals necessarily, right, feel as offended as people do. I mean, it's not like animals give consent to sex in the wild to other animals. And so I think what people are really getting angry about is going back to this dyadic morality thing, this imbalance between the person and the goat, let's say, right? So the person is this clearly thinking doer, right? A person can give consent, they can plan, and a goat can't. And so all we think is that they're just vulnerable feelers. And so the example we raise in the book is, imagine how upset you'd be if someone has sex with a puppy. Chances are you'd be pretty upset, but now imagine that someone falls in love and tries to have sex with a hammerhead shark. Oh, right. We wouldn't have as much compassion. Right. We'd think, wow, that's a, that's a weird thing. But, you know, if you can figure out a way, you know, to make love to a, our great white Wait, shark. In that yeah. sense, don't we reverse it and say, like, maybe you're the victim if you get, you know, your bits chomped off? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. that's why we don't feel bad for the person, because now yeah. they're the victim. So yeah. it's all about this ratio, as, uh, as you mentioned. It's fascinating, yeah, it's, especially in the enemy chapter, you talk about how you know, the, the dehumanization aspect of what we do to our enemy that strips them of their agency and experience, right? And it's really interesting because, like, you know, we do that, we do that like, in, in lots of subtle ways. Like, even, like, you know, with, like, the person who doesn't like their partner, they think their partner is not spending enough attention on them, and they call them a narcissist. And they say, oh, that person's such a narcissist. You know, my, my boyfriend or my girlfriend's such a narcissist. Um, or, like, you know, so I share, Rich read a really interesting book about that called The Selfishness of Others, which just came out recently, about how we throw these words around that kind of, like, label the person in a way that strips them of their, their humanity. They kind of sometimes make ourselves feel better about ourselves as well. Yeah, it's very easy to take away mind. I mean, as we talk about how easy it is to give mind oftentimes, how easy right. it is to kind of see your computer as having a mind or your cat as being human, but it's equally easy 
to kind of strip away mind from people who disagree with us or who make us feel bad about ourselves or who are just different than us, people of different religions or races or what have you. Are there humans, though, that don't have a mind? Well, I think the... Are there? I mean, we don't really know. Zombies could exist. Zombies could exist, Philosophical zombies, Chalmers zombies, yeah. Right, yeah, Chalmers zombies for, you know, for listeners who aren't familiar, is this idea of someone who acts and looks and talks just like a person with a mind, but they actually don't have a mind. They're like a Stepford wife, a very sophisticated robot, you could imagine. So, you know, as you said, it's hard to ever tell if someone's really like that. I think... The best contender for someone that doesn't have a mind that's a human is maybe someone in a in a vegetative state, right? Mm-hmm. Who suffered a lot of brain damage. But someone walking around talking, I think it's a pretty good assumption that they have a mind like you, even if you sometimes ignore it. Okay. But even uh, people in vegetative states, you know, you talk about the, the emerging fMRI research or EEG research looking at people in vegetative states. How has that increased our understanding of the presence of mind in, in such people? Yeah, it's been actually pretty important because a lot of these these minds of vegetative patients, as we say in the book, are silent. It's very hard to know if someone in a vegetative state has a mind because they can't tell you about it. Sometimes I feel like I'm in a vegetative state. Like, do you ever have days where you're trying to work and like nothing is like flowing whatsoever? Yes, yes. <laughs> why, Although, does that, why does that happen? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a matter of perception. Yeah, as I think as dense as you feel on those days, I think you're still one up over people who, you know, can't even blink. Um, Okay, that's totally fair. That's a fair point. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so there's these people who who you're not sure if they are, you know, vegetative, like there's nothing going on in their mind or they're locked in, right? That there's a mind there. They just can't express it somehow locked between their uh, limp, limp limbs and their frozen face. And so MRI helps us distinguish that. So you can ask people questions in the scanner and you know to one example is think about playing tennis or please think about walking around your house and if you're in a vegetative state you can't do that right you can't respond to those questions but if you're locked in if you're still a mind back there you can and so these mri researchers found that a woman they thought was in a vegetative state actually seemed to be locked in because she could think about playing tennis when she was asked to think about playing tennis and think about walking around her house when she was asked to do so. So this really kind of flexible behavior really distinguishes the two. Wow. And fMRI was able to pick up on uh, the relevant brain areas that we know have to do with like spatial navigation and stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think the difficulty with MRI and why this isn't, you know, like a godsend for having conversations with people is because the signal's really messy. and you have to ask the question something like 50 times each and average across all those things to see what's happening. So it's not like you get incredible specificity where you can be like, well, think about how you feel about your mother right now. You know, it's not clear what that would be. So it only works in specific circumstances, but still pretty powerful. Right. We can't read minds yet through fMRI. That's right. Exactly. I mean, do you think we'll ever get to that point? Maybe there's some researchers who are using EEG, so kind of electrical signals that happen with much faster temporal resolution, not spatially, but much faster temporally. And they're trying to get people to do kind of yes-no responses. And some of those seem pretty promising. Another potential way is with the deep brain implants. So you could implant electrodes, which gives you 
you know, circumvents the skull being there, which kind of messes up a lot of measurements. So they're all potentials. And I think we'll get there someday, hopefully soon. But but these things always take longer. I mean, couldn't you imagine like a, a Google Glass type of thing where you... I don't know. I'm just, I'm trying to think of like like science fiction where we actually can read people's minds someday. You know, we have access to their brain scans. <laughs> it's creepy. I mean, you could. I just think that the brain isn't very compartmentalized, right? It's yeah. all these like different networks on top of each other, and so it's just hard to parse out. You just know themes. You'd be like, right. oh, they're in the like sexual, you know realm right now of what they're thinking whatever it is whatever the content is or they're oh they're navigating something or oh they're really spending a lot of effort on metacognition because their ba10 is active or something you know right so it's exactly exactly kind of broad themes like the uh when they unleashed i think it was microsoft or google unleashed a a computer to learn about the internet which you can imagine is kind of like a mind this distributed network that thinks about a lot of things and it came up with like cats and being a jerk (laughs) Basically, like an ag- aggressive person who likes watching things about cats. So maybe that we'll do that. That seems like uh, both extremes of your vulnerable feeling and thinking doer. <laughs> that's true, actually. Yeah. 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 Cats and trolling. Yeah. That sounds like a great example of each extreme category. <laughs> <laughs> Why are humanoid robots creepy? Ah, yes. Why are humanoid robots creepy? So I think, well, I should say this has been something that's been noticed for maybe almost 50 years now. There was a Japanese roboticist named Mori, and he came up with this idea called the Uncanny Valley. And the idea of the Uncanny Valley is that we generally like robots the more human-like they are, the more they express emotion and feelings. And so that's the kind of left side of a curve that's going up. but we don't like them to talk back. Right, right. But you like Wally, right? The robot in the animated movie. Yes. Like anthropomorphic, right? Feelings and thinking. But there's a point at which this kind of upward trend of liking robots, the more they look human, takes a steep drop. And that drop into the canyon or valley is called the uncanny valley. And you can find it all over the place. So if you've seen the movie The Polar Express with Tom Hanks, people don't like that because Tom Hanks looks human, but not quite, has these dead gray eyes. Mm. And in fact, Pixar refuses explicitly to do realistic humans because of the uncanny valley. So they only do things like animals or very stylized humans like the Incredibles. And so I think, you know, the reason for this, some people have suggested it's just the appearance that creeps us out. But I think really what's going on is perceptions of mind. So we have this in our minds, this big separation between things that should feel and things that shouldn't feel. So you and me, we're okay. Animals, that's cool. But cars and robots, right? they are inanimate. They are made of metal. They should not feel. And so what's creepy is when things that shouldn't feel, like robots, seem to be able to feel because they have a human-like face. Right. So we have research suggesting that even if it doesn't have a human face, if I just tell you, look, there's a robot over here. It looks pretty mechanical, but it has this like deep capacity for love and fear and pain. That's pretty unnerving to people. Yeah, I just Google image Tom Hanks and Polar Express. He looks pretty normal to me. He looks like a real human. Doesn't, uh, doesn't creep me out. <laughs> he's not moving yet, though. Oh, okay. Maybe we need to watch the, the, video, the video of it then. Okay. Yeah, his eyes kind of track strange. Oh. It's really all in the eyes. We've got oh. 
where we uh, we take people's faces and remove the eyes. It's kind of weird. But people get super creepy if you take their eyes out, and they don't if you take their nose out, for instance. They just look kind of silly with their, their nose. Huh. Uh, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, the eyes convey so much social information. And so much emotion, right? So much feeling is in the eyes. We think of the mouth as smiling, but it's really in the eyes. So true. So fascinating. Let's talk about death. Why not? Okay. Um, we talk about this. So what's the chances that, you know, when, when you die, your uh, mind is gone forever? Well. <laughs> <laughs> will, you, will you give us some hope? <laughs> I'd say it's a non-zero chance. That's, okay. You know, that's something. Okay. You're doing a little Pascal's wager here? That's right. That's right. You never know. But I think what's the chances that we continue to perceive someone's mind after they pass away? Right. That's very, very high. That is high. And yet we perceive ghosts all over the place, right? Why do ghosts always have unfinished business, for instance? Yeah. I mean, I think, again, all these are outgrowths of how we perceive minds of the living. And certainly there's this effect called the Zigarnik effect in real life. And what it is, is unfinished business is always more strongly activated in your mind. So if you're driving to work in the morning and you're listening to something in the car and you get out of the car and you haven't finished the song yet, then that's the song you're going to find yourself singing all day, right? Because it's like you haven't gotten to the end. It just keeps kind of in your mind, right? Or if you like... Isn't, that, to... isn't that how seduction works as well? Like people really like people they can't have or people really like people who like you know, like are kind of a little standoffish as opposed to like, I really love you, I really love you, I really want you. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, if you want to talk about seduction, the, the greatest unfinished business, right, is when you are about to have sex with someone and you get stopped just a little bit short, right? Yes. Because then you're like, you're so aroused and you're so excited and you're so anticipating this and then all of a sudden it stops. Right. And so... This is the same thing with ghosts in some sense, right? We think about a mind who's ceased to exist, but they just have one more thing left to finish. And because we can just can't imagine leaving something before we finish it, like sex, for instance, right. we can't imagine someone leaving to the afterlife until their work is done. And you've done actually done the study that people who die when they're in a state of alertness tend to, we perceive their mind more. Is that right? That's right. Yep. So we're actually writing that up now in a paper. And the idea is that we again perceive the minds of the dead as if they were in life, but really as if they were in life the moment before they died. Wow. And so like the Kurt Cobain and people who were in that club, what was it 27 Club? The 27 Club, yeah. Um, like, yeah, you make an interesting point. Like if Kurt Cobain was still alive or let's say he, you know, he becomes 80 years old and then he's like barely able to make it on stage, you know, to play and, and his playing release is bad at age 80 or whatever, and then he dies at age 85, will we tend to remember, will we not like idolize him as much, you think, than if he died at 27? I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, Jimi Hendrix and Amy Winehouse and Janis Joplin, right? all sorts of folks who are kind of immortalized in our minds about music, Buddy Holly, right? I mean, we all understand the Rolling Stones are a huge deal. And we understand like the Beatles are a huge deal, but it's really like Lennon that we like pine after. Right, when Ringo's 90 and in some nursing home in London, you know, just be like, wow, yeah, he used to be, he used to be Ringo. But it's not the same effect of punch because he didn't end when he was famous. Wow. Okay, so we're not advocating that you kill yourself at a young age. 
That's true. By any stretch of the imagination. But the research suggests that if you want to be remembered as a, go down as a legend, whenever you die, be in a as a you know alert as possible, or as a you know kind of like in the middle of like a masterpiece. Yes, that's true. Is that right? I don't yeah, know. I mean, is, even this, if... is this really taboo? I mean, we're, we're, this is like the most taboo-ridden like podcast chat I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, even if you're not doing some great creative work, you know, you, you could die at the peak of your creative output. That's probably the best way to be as famous as possible. But if you're not doing some great creative work, then just make sure when you die, you've got your eyes open and you're awake. Right? It's a simple study. We basically ask people to say how much mind does someone have after their death when they die while asleep or in a coma or while awake and fully alert. And if you die while you're awake and fully alert, people think you have more personality after death. And I think it's more important to follow the wishes of your will, which I think is pretty interesting because I think, you know, you still care about it versus if you died while you're in a coma, then they think, well, whatever, we can ignore his last wishes. Exactly. Yeah. People go to such lengths to follow people's last wishes, even if it like sacrifices the living, you know, like, no, we can't, you know, we got to honor that his last wish to cut down that center, you know, even though it'll keep all those people out of jobs, you know, like. Yeah, totally. Because we still think that person still cares about it in some ways. Whereas if you think about it, right, like if you're, let's say you believe in heaven and hell, like if you're in heaven, you're having incredible joy and bliss being reunited with with God. You're not going to care about something so petty as, you know, to build this fence or to keep this building around. And if you're in hell, well, then you're in eternal suffering and you really don't care about some fence because you're in pain all the time. And so it seems like there's no real you know, account where people would care that much about what they cared about in life as in death. But, so where, where do we go when we die? Uh, uh, there, that, there, there's a very banal possibility that we don't go anywhere, right? And that's like be the hor- most horrifying thing for people to think. You know, it's like people really don't want to accept that possibility is that we don't actually go anywhere. Our we, the we, which is mostly what the mind is really what is who we are, just ceases to exist for eternity, but it doesn't go anywhere. That'd be the scariest thing, right? Right. Our, our consciousness is annihilated. But forever. You know, yeah, forever. Or maybe like the way the universe works is it loops back on itself at some point. Like, you know, eternity is a really long time. Like maybe like the laws of physics don't work that way. Maybe it's actually a continual loop or something. We will never know till, you know, it happens. But isn't that possible? I mean, all these things are, are definitely possible. I mean, some people say, like, why would I fear the world after my death? I don't fear the world before, before yeah, my consciousness, yeah. right? So, yeah. I mean, it actually doesn't seem that funny to me because before you were born, you were, you know, you didn't have a full self. By the end of death, you've got a full self and you've done all these amazing things. So, I mean. But, you know, if the Big Bang is right in the sense that, like, we don't have free will and everything was determined in that moment, then isn't it technically true that like before we were born, there still was like a destiny of what that self would end up to be someday? So yes, I think. Why are we not smoking pot right now? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Listening to some doors. Um, For the record, I do not smoke pot. That was a joke. I just want to say that. (laughs) (laughs) But it's definitely not predictable what you're going to end up be. So even if the universe is determined, you know, you don't know what's going to happen next week or a year from now. And so you might as well try your best to, Right, but someone would know, or not someone. I mean, I'm inferring the mind, you know. But you know, the whole God, you know, God is fascinating. Like you argue in the in the chapter on God, 
And I was going to ask you, does God exist? Because I feel like these are just like, I just want to ask you all these questions. Like, what happens when we die? Does God exist? And I feel like you've answers to all these things. So does God exist? Well, many people would definitely perceive him to exist. Exactly. That's, that's uh, certainly more people perceive him to exist than people who perceive him not to exist. So that's something. And it might not even be a him. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Or uh, even have a gender. I mean, could, you know, but it seems kind of offensive. It, uh, yeah. I don't want to offend God. But it, it's fascinating because we infer, not only do we infer, but we, you know, you know how like we talk about, you know, like when we're, you know, childhood trauma and then we end up projecting things onto people in our relationships. Well, God's like the ultimate projection. <laughs> Every one of us kind of projects onto God to be whoever kind of created out of our own image as opposed to God create us in his or her image, right? Yeah, especially with morality. So you mentioned, you know, smoking marijuana and there's a researcher named Nick Epley who has this wonderful study and asks people, you know, do you think it's immoral or permissible to smoke marijuana? And what do you think God thinks about that? Yeah. And people think that God thinks the exact same thing as they do, especially yeah. with moral things. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, that just makes so much sense. So, um, yeah, oh my gosh, so many implications there, but there's almost so much we could talk about today. But my God, there's this, I just said, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so returning to death for a second, there are people who are trying to kind of try this experiment of cryogenics, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a scientific experiment, whether or not there will be facilities in the future that would allow us, that would not consider us dead in the sense that we consider ourselves dead now. And, you know, like 100 years ago, we declared people dead. And for things that we could actually, now we have the technology to keep their lives going, continuing, right? So right. what do you think the feasibility and possibility of cryogenics are? It sounds to me like it's actually quite reasonable in the sense of like, you know, you have 100% chance of not existing forever versus some non-zero chance of there being some technology in the future. So I'm actually intrigued by cryogenics. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I am also actually very intrigued by cryogenics. And out of any sense of immortality, that's the one that also appeals the most to me. And I think it's very... Do you want to be in the same canister as me? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As long as it's a big canister. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's fit some other people in there too. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, it's very easy to free someone. I think the, the difficulty is unfreezing them and having them be alive again. Because, you know, you only freeze them once they're already dead by some problem. So maybe the best way to go about it is to to freeze us before you know, we're dead. But I think that's, that's not legal. Le it's not legal yet. But I have been thinking that is like that makes the most sense. Like if you want to like maximize the chances that you're going to live like an extended life, like there's a good chance that like let's say five thousand years from now, the life extension will probably be. I'm just predicting would be much more than eighty years. And like let's say we froze you at age like twenty. Yeah, I guess, but then you take the huge risk. This is the point you're making is you still take a, it's still, it's not, still not guaranteed that we'd be even be able to unfreeze you, even though you were alive when we freezed you, correct? Right. And so that's, think a big, the, that, that's a big risk. Yeah. As opposed and, to guaranteed to at least live longer than 20. Yeah. Right. And you need to think of like the motivation for society at the time, right? Like 80 years from now, no one's going to know who you are. Correct. Like 200 years. Like, why do we have to unfreeze this guy? Great point. Great point. Yeah, we're assuming that's a big assumption that 5,000 years from now, you know, anyone will like go back to that canister and be like, oh, we forgot about these people. <laughs> right. And like, yeah. let's spend a ton of money making their consciousness on the internet or, you know, feeding into robots or something that us be like, yep, let's just unthaw them and throw them out. No, for sure. But doesn't it seem potentially, 
seems kind of unfair that like we just happened to be born. We didn't choose what epic of the universe we we were born. We were luckier than those who were born like you know twelve hundred and eighty one. You know, in 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 terms of life, I'm just talking strictly in terms of life expectancy. Right. But you know, like, what if we knew that like five thousand years from now, people live as long as they wanted to live in a healthy way? It kind of doesn't that. It's like. Darn it. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? Like, darn it. We were born in the wrong... Totally. I don't, I don't, do you know what I mean? Does anyone ever think of this or is this just me? No, I think they do. I mean, every time I think of, you know, young kids, I just think, you know, your life expectancy yeah. will already be higher than mine. I think of but, that too, yeah. I mean, I'm going to outlive my parents, hopefully, or my grandparents, hopefully, right? So it's always getting better. So I think the key in life is probably just to do downward comparisons to make yourself feel better, <laughs> whether that's in terms of longevity or income or whatever. Sure, sure. Well, th- what a fascinating conversation. I think we can probably stop there. Um, and thanks for writing this book and offering such fascinating insights on the mind and everything else that's taboo in this world. <laughs> thanks for having me. It was, uh, it was a fun conversation. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home? Take a deep breath and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually 
in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 